Inherent worth is an inside-out process. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. What up? For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a complete and total shit show. I'm a recovering alcoholic who, at nine years sober, realized that my problem wasn't really alcoholism. My problem was the unresolved trauma from my childhood. And this is a podcast where we talk about how to heal from the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. That dysfunction can come in many forms, alcoholism, addiction, um, having a narcissistic or mentally ill parent, growing up in a highly controlling or perfectionistic home, growing up in a super religious home, being raised by an emotionally immature parent, big dysfunction, little dysfunction, subtle dysfunction, blatant dysfunction, they all can create an adult child. So welcome aboard this hot mess of a ship. So today we are diving deep with Jody White. Jody White is a psychotherapist. She has been trained by Pia Melody. She specializes in love addiction. She is the host of the very popular podcast, Journals of a Love Addict. I've been wanting to have her on for quite some time. So as you'll hear Jody talk about today, you know, the term love addiction isn't necessarily the right word to describe it. But really what this is, it's more of, you know, an attachment related disorder. It is more about the results, the impact of emotional developmental trauma. But there definitely are addictive components that are associated with this. However, when we are treating this, when we are healing this, it must be viewed from the perspective of trauma, from an attachment-related disorder, and really looking at those childhood wounds. But in order for us to really do this work, we do have to remove ourselves from the addiction, go through that withdrawal before we're in a place where we can really start to do the healing work that is necessary for us to truly heal. So super excited for y'all to hear this conversation. So let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. This is my online support community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups. This is where there are also small subgroups where you can talk about specific topics. This is also where there is a chat open 24-7. This is a support community in your back pocket at your fingertips. This is a place full of cool ass shit shows who are vulnerable and raw and authentic and have senses of humor and who really truly want to heal. This is a community of people who are really committed to doing the damn work. I do just want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Shit Show community. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Kimberly, Carrie, Reagan, Missy, Katie, Beth, Brandy, Ashlyn, Chelsea, Lindsay, Michelle, Novia, Stephanie, Megan, Christine, Morgan, Ariel, Eric, another Michelle, Kathleen, Matilda, Melody, Heather, Susie, Stephanie, and Izzy. Thank you, thank you, thank you, you damn shit shows. How about the rest of y'all follow suit? Go down the join shit show. See the link in my bio. Today's the day. Let's do it now. Next, give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. And last, that didn't sound very clear, at Adult Child Pod. <laughs> and last but not least, give me a little follow. Oh, no, I already said that. Last but not least, please give me a damn five-star review on Apple, on Spotify. Thank you. Love you all. Don't leave me this way. Well, I am so damn excited. And we can curse here, Jody. We have Jody White, psychotherapist and host of the Journals of a Love Addict podcast. And there are so many people right now that are so fucking pumped that I'm talking to you. Uh, good. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm so glad to be here. And I, you know, this is my work and I love talking about it. I think it's important. And sharing my story is 
apparently, well, been really well received over the last couple of years since I started the podcast. You know, I started it because I thought no one's talking about this, at least at the time. And especially when I was struggling with love addiction Mm -hmm. and I didn't know I was struggling with love addiction. So it's really hard to get help for something when you don't know what you're struggling with. No shit. I'll just tell you, this is the only ground rule. Okay. It's Andrea being called Andrea will stop the interview. Did I call you Andrea? No, you didn't. Okay, good. I'm just telling you. Yeah. Okay. My audience is sick of me saying this, but I do think it's important just whenever I'm talking to a new guest that they know like a little bit of my deal and my backstory. And mm-hmm. I think it'll be helpful for you in our conversation. So got sober at 19, seven years sober, dated a guy for less than a month. He ghosted me. My reaction was as if my husband of 30 years had just tragically died in a plane crash, right? You know, became non-functioning, couldn't go to work. Mm-hmm. And it was in the midst of that, that I had my first aha, which was, there's no way that the way that I'm feeling right now could actually be about this person. Like I've known them for less than 30 days and they clearly have a drinking problem. The second aha was, this was a feeling that I felt often as a child. Yes. And this was the feeling that I felt when I woke up in the middle of the night and thought I was going to fucking die if I couldn't sleep in my mom's bed. Yeah. So a couple of months later, I go to an AA meeting. I hear this woman with over 30 years talking about how she had come to terms with her childhood at seven years sober as a result of a relationship. She mentioned this book, Adult Children of Alcoholics. I go home, I read the book, my mind's blown. Next week I go back to the meeting. I see her, I talk to her. I say, thank you so much for your share. I share a little bit about myself. And she just looks at me and she goes, Andrea, that's great. But I just want you to know that this is going to take years and years and years and years for you to work through you have to treat this as seriously as your alcoholism. And I was like, I don't know how old I was, like 27, 28. And I just thought, years? <laughs> years, lady? Like, I'm almost 30. So basically a senior citizen. I need to have this shit figured out like yesterday, but like at most maybe a couple months. And I just really hope that her childhood was like way more fucked up than mine. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll take a year off of dating. I've read this book. Surely that'll be enough. Fast forward, enter Brian number two. Not only had things not improved, it seemed like things almost had gotten worse. It was the most painful six months of my entire life. Way more painful than my bottom from alcoholism. And it was through that that I realized just truly how powerful what it was that I was dealing with. And when that ended, I realized that like my life depended upon, you know, facing these issues. And so that was in 2018. Mm -hmm. So that eventually led to me starting the podcast. So I would love for you to touch upon your bottom. Mm, My bottom. So I feel like the bottom I have so many memories flashing in my head right now. I'm like, which one do I choose as the actual bottom? Because there were times when I look back and think that could have, would have maybe been the bottom. But then I just want to touch on what you just said, that you read, you did stuff, worked on yourself for a year, took a year off of dating, thought it was all going to be better, got back into another relationship. I always call it the same relationship, different guy. Mm -hmm. And that was how, that is how it can happen. It's like you can get into this terrible place and then think, oh, I figured it out. I'm going to take a year off of dating. And then you start, the whole thing starts over again with a different person. Mm-hmm. That's how powerful this stuff, this attachment stuff is. And so go back to your question about what was my bottom. I feel like the bottom for me was like a rolling bottom because I would hit the bottom and then I would just <laughs> go into <laughs> It was an escalator, not an elevator. I mean, it was basically (laughs) like I'd go there and then I'd be do exactly what you did. Oh, I'll just take this time off of dating and Mm -hmm. quote unquote work on myself. And I was going to therapy, but we weren't talking about Mm -hmm. this stuff. You know, back in the early 2000s, no therapist I had was talking to me about attachment and or definitely not about love addiction. I don't even think anyone was talking about that, even though P.M. Melody wrote Facing Love Addiction Mm -hmm. way back when. But So I would dip my toe into the bottom. I'd come back out, think I was quote unquote, all better, get back into it. There it is facing love addiction. And then, so it's kind of like, you just keep dipping into it, dipping into it, dip. And what I call it with love addiction, it's a ramp up. It just keeps ramping up. So every time you go in 
and you try to do it again, it gets worse. Like the symptoms get worse. It happens faster. Mm -hmm. There's more damage done, you mm -hmm. know? And so for me, I would say the bottom had to be at 46 years old when I was a therapist and I was still doing this thing over and over again. And I had a friend who was a therapist and I had just moved to Austin and my friend here in Austin said, you know, there's this therapist. I met her at the Meadows. You know, we trained in PMLD's program there, one of PMLD's programs. And she said, mate, this therapist, I don't know, maybe she'd be a good fit for you. It wasn't that my friend thought it was love addiction. She just said, maybe this therapist would be a good fit. And within 20 minutes of being in this new therapist office, I mean, she looked at me and she goes, this is love addiction. You're attracted to love avoidant partners. And she basically broke down my entire history. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said, I get it because I've me done too. it too. And I mean, it was, just, it changed everything. And so I would say that was the bottom because even though I had keep, I kept dipping my toe in and it kept getting worse, there was more at risk by the time you're 46 years old and you've been doing it for over 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, and even if you're in this cycle and you pull yourself out of it, cause that's what it would be like for me mm -hmm. in the relationships, everything was falling apart out of a relationship. I mean, I was yeah. once you got over the part yeah, out exactly. of withdrawal, mm -hmm. once you're out of withdrawal and you're like, I'll never do that again. Mm -hmm. And then that's not how it works. So until you work on this family of origin stuff, you're going to keep repeating it over and over again. So that was, that was my experience too. Exactly what you said. It was like in each relationship, it was more painful from the last one. It was like my peace of mind would be hijacked as soon as I got it. And same thing. I would take year, a year and a half off mm -hmm. feeling my fucking best and in therapy as well. Yeah. It's a, such a common story for so many of my listeners that we sit in therapy for years and years and years and years and years and years. And the therapist is unable to identify like, Hey, this is complex trauma from your childhood. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I started therapy in the late nineties. My therapy consisted of me going in and talking about my relationship mm. just over and over and over, you know, this is what he did. This is what he said. You know, there wasn't a lot of, okay, let's, I think one time, a therapist said to me, Hey, Jody, next week, we're not going to talk about him. And I was like, I'm going to talk about whatever I want to talk about. And I did. I just kept talking about it's more relationship. I was venting. It was just yeah. constant venting. And it's like the walking through and the obsessing over it and the ruminating over it. And, you know, really good therapists. That's the thing is we are trained, meet the client where they are, reflect back. You know, there are these traditional therapy ways of doing things. And I consider myself to be a more modern therapist where it's like, okay, let's look at what's going on here. And, you know, luckily people usually come to me when they are already, they're aware that they are dealing with love addiction and they're ready to make a change there. But, you know, I had a therapist, like I said, in back when I was 46 years old, who didn't sit there and say, and how do you feel about that? <laughs> she said, here's what's going on. And she took a risk with me because I could have easily not come back to her if I wasn't ready to hear that. But I was, I was ready. What a godsend. I love that episode. I'll put it in the show notes. That's such a fucking good episode. That therapist. Yeah. That she came on. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Yeah. And she was someone who, you know, she disclosed, you know, she yeah. self-disclosed in our session. She let me know this is, I have dealt with this too, because it's very validating. You know, when you've spent over 20 years feeling crazy, because I felt like I was always the problem. If I could only pull it together, something is wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm terrible at relationships. I mean, there was just all this messaging that was going on. Yeah, I was getting there too. Like I clearly I'm inherently flawed and unfixable mm -hmm. because I've been trying to fix this shit and nothing's getting any better. Okay, next question. And this is usually where I start my interviews, but okay, so you hit your bottom, but when was the moment that you truly came to terms with the actual impact that your childhood had on you. So that is one thing that over all those years with therapists who weren't talking about attachment, I had this inkling that this has something to do with mm. childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, this has something to do. This reminds me of how I felt in fourth grade. This reminds me of how I felt that time that I broke my collarbone and this mm. happened at home. You know, like all these things that... I had all these ideas, but I didn't know how to put all that together 
And so I think it was probably, you know, once I found this therapist eight years ago who reintroduced me to Pia Melody. Okay. So here's the thing is I had read Facing Codependence years before. Really? And I had thought, this sounds familiar, but if you're not ready to really dig into that, it's like, I'll put that aside for now. But so she reintroduced me to Pia's work. And that's when I really started looking at it. And I also, that's the other part of that validation Mm. from a therapist saying, yeah, this is all rooted in childhood, you know? And so I had done, after meeting her, I did a family of origin workshop that's based on Pia Melody's work. And that's when you start digging in. And it is so uncomfortable. I mean, it's just so uncomfortable to look at that because we have these conditioned beliefs. We're not supposed to talk about that stuff. You know, what stay, what happens in the family stays in the family. Don't you know, that's what, yeah, we protect, we protect our parents. We, you know, and I love my parents and that's the other part is that's hard to hold two things is you can love your parents very much. And these things happened. Um, so that's yeah. what I told my parents when I started this, I said, I don't worry. I'm like going to point out that like a loving family and a dysfunctional family are not mutually exclusive. Right. So talk about that. Talk about what it was like during your childhood and what are some of the experiences that, you know, primed you to love addiction? So my parents were very young when they had me, my mom, but 17 years old, I was an accident, let's say. (laughs) So there is that as well, that when you're an unexpected baby, attachment trauma, you know, PMLD will call it that shame existence bind mm-hmm. because you weren't really supposed to be here and you, people mm-hmm. weren't really excited about me coming, you know, although my mom, I think got excited about it, you know, but at the time when you're a teenager and you find out you're pregnant, oh shit, you know, this is, and the families aren't happy. And my dad was just graduating high school. My mom was only a junior in high school. So there was a lot of stress. So there's that part of it too. And so I always call it, I'm the daughter of teenage parents. And, you know, mom having to work outside the home, just the stress around getting married when they're teenagers too, and not having the support, you know, especially now that I'm doing the mother hunger work, which is based on Kelly McDaniel's work. She wrote the book, Ready to Heal. And then her second book is called Mother Hunger. Mm -hmm. And it goes so well with Pia Melody's work as well, you know, to look at that when a mother doesn't have the support that she needs, it's very hard for her to be wholeheartedly there unconditionally for her daughter or any child. But so, you know, there was, there was stress, there was stress within my mom's family of origin, stress within my dad's family of origin. And that just trickles down into, you know, when you're raising children, what's going on in the extended family as well. So I was always the good girl for the most part. And then probably around ninth or 10th grade, I kind of said, fuck it. I don't want to be good anymore. And I started acting out and I started dating a guy who had dropped out of high school and my parents did not like him. He was older than me. Oh, it was. And he was avoidant, of course. And so it was all about trying to change him too. I mean, he was my little project, you know, I was trying to get him to get his GED and get a job and stop smoking so much pot. (laughs) And so I threw my whole self into trying to fix him mm-hmm. until I got tired of that, moved on to another person who I'd spent four years trying to fix. And I look at that as like early love addiction signs coming on, but not full blown love addiction. It was really more the codependence. Mm-hmm. And then the love addiction really kicked in in my early twenties. So yeah. I just but did it, an mm-hmm. episode about that. Like the kind of the overlap of codependency and love addiction. How would you explain the difference between codependency and love addiction? Okay. So this is, again, I, I use PMLD's model because it's, there's a lot of information out there about codependence yep. and love addiction, and it can get really confusing. Yep. So if you look at PMLD's model and this is, you know, Deve- she- developmental immaturity, That's right. Yeah. And that's what she, you know, she used to call it codependency. Now she prefers. Yeah. Well, it's all rooted in trauma. So she really, so instead of codependence, she prefers the term or the the way of looking at it as this is developmental immaturity due to developmental trauma. And so this consists of five core issues due to our developmental trauma. So those five core issues are an issue with self-esteem. Yep. And that means we either 
think too much or too less of ourselves. We think too much or too little of ourselves. Okay. That's the first issue. The second issue is an issue with boundaries. We're either yep. too rigid or we're too porous. Mm-hmm. So extremes, it's living in the extremes. The third issue is an issue with reality. We struggle to own our reality. Uh, the fourth is an issue with dependence, which is the one that people focus on the most. And that's where we're too dependent on others or we're anti-dependent. Like I don't need anything. I'm fine over here by myself. And then the other is an issue with moderation. So if we look at all of that, let's call it the codependence for the sake of this conversation, that comes first. So then some of us, we'll move into the love addiction, not everybody. And that love addiction comes with three symptoms. And that is expecting unconditional positive regard from the other person. That would be the unconditional love that we should have gotten in childhood, a love without boundaries, basically. Mm-hmm. Then we either put someone on a pedestal. That's the second uh, symptom of love addiction. We overvalue someone. You know, we put, we assign too much value to that person. We make them more valuable than we are. And then the third symptom is that we undervalue or neglect ourselves while in that relationship. So the way I look at that is they're different, but they can go together because mm-hmm. if you look at Pia's model, the codependence comes first and out of that grows, can grow the love addiction. What are your, everybody. What are your thoughts around when she talks about how there are certain addictions that have to be addressed first mm-hmm. before you can even start to touch upon the codependency versus other addictions that become more clear or obvious once you've already started to tap into the codependency some. Yeah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So when I, if I'm understanding your question, when I started working with doing my own work, mm-hmm. you know, in recovery, and then also I went to train with Pia at the Meadows and learned there how this works. Using my case, for example, I was using alcohol to medicate the anxiety and the dysregulation and the lowered self-esteem during my love addiction. So, it, you know, those money trees you buy and they're kind of wrapped or, <clears throat> or braided. That's how I looked at my alcohol use and my love addiction. It sort of grew together. But so in order to start digging in to my recovery, I had to stop using alcohol to medicate the feelings because you want those feelings to come up. You know, what we're doing is avoiding the emotions and the feelings. We use our love addiction to do that too, really. But so Pia is talking about some of this has to be addressed, like substance use, anything we're using to medicate ourselves, because we want to experience the discomfort of all these feelings that we are stuffing. Right. So then is it your Mm -hmm. question? Yeah. And then once you dig in, like for me, I realized, oh, I actually have some disordered eating. I did not know that. I thought I escaped that one, but I actually had some control issues around food. It wasn't anything that would be labeled as anorexia or anything like, but it's disordered eating. And that's really how I look at a lot of this is that, you know, disordered eating, you know, disordered spending, you know, instead of getting into putting any big labels on there, but these are the things that we can use or have issues with, you know, in all of this due to those symptoms of the developmental trauma. Was there any alcoholism or addiction in your family? Not really. No. No. What do you know about your parents' upbringings? A lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know a lot. You know, my dad's parents were divorced. My dad's dad was a lieutenant colonel in the army military. And there was alcohol. There were alcohol issues there and spending issues. And I look at him as having some very serious attachment trauma because he was uh, put up for adoption, you know, a very long time ago. And, you know, my mom's mom came over from the UK after World War II, didn't have any support from her family, any connection really to her family. There's a lot of mother hunger there. So that just gets handed down. So, yeah. And do you have siblings? I have a little brother. Okay. 
And have you guys been able to connect on this? Yeah, we have. And what about with your parents? Yes, I'm going to say yes. The answer to that question is yes. I've shared a lot about my process. I would say my mom is more open to hearing about it than maybe my dad, Mm -hmm. but he's not not open to hearing it. There's just Mm -hmm. a difference in how much I... Also, you know, when you're talking to someone who gets it or who wants to get it, that's a very different conversation. No shit. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can talk to someone about it who might be open, you know, oh, okay, yeah, I hear you, I hear you, but you can tell they're not, it's not totally sinking in, or there might be, you know, a protective wall there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about like the term love addiction, and I also want to talk about slaw some. Mm-hmm. So, I know when you say love addiction that you you are identifying that the, the attachment trauma piece. My concern is, and I kind of feel like this with slaw, that a lot of the times when we say love addiction or when other people hear that, they're purely viewing it as just like an addiction in the brain. And so I dip my toe into slaw And I don't know, like I struggled with it from that perspective in the sense that like, I felt like it was being purely treated as like the trauma element of it was not really being discussed as much Mm -hmm. or like, you know, even when you're going into withdrawal or like emotional flashbacks, like I had a sponsor who was like, just get into action, but it's like, I'm in the midst of an emotional flashback right now. You don't understand you know, it's not just, she really just like kind of downplayed it and was Mm -hmm. just like acting as if, and I'm like, no, these are like really (laughs) deep wounds. Mm -hmm. My nervous system is having a reaction right now. So what, what are your thoughts there? I should probably say, I don't like the term love addiction. I don't like it at all. I don't, it doesn't describe what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it has very little to do with love, at least functional adult love. And as far as the addiction piece, you know, the reason I can get more on board with the idea of it being addiction is because if you look at the symptoms of what we look at as addiction, which is like you lose time with family members or friends because of this thing called love addiction, right? Negative consequences can occur when you're in the cycle of love addiction. You might have an obsessive preoccupation with the relationship. You can attempt to stop the behavior and be unsuccessful and it continues to ramp up, right? Gets worse and worse. So I can get a little more on board with the idea of this being addiction, but I don't like the term love addiction. I continue to use the term because it's out there. Exactly. Right. But I really SEO trust. Hits. What's that? What's that? SEO hits. You know, well, yeah. And for people who hear me talk about it, they can go do some Google research on it and find some good information. There's also some information out there that's not so good. But, you know, I figure this is the book that helped me facing love addiction is what helped me so much. And that's the term. I was introduced to this with that term. And I think, you know, for now, that's what I'm going to continue to use. You know, my podcast. What do you want to call it? I don't know yet. I'm not really sure. I always say we're talking about trauma. We're mm-hmm. talking about complex trauma, you know, and when we're, we look at the treatment, we have to look at this through. And that's what Pia's model is. Her treatment model is all about complex trauma, developmental trauma. That's what we're talking about. This term love addiction can be, I've heard people say it's an addiction to relationships. You know, you can just jump in and out of relationships or you have to be with someone. That's maybe true for some people. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking Mm -hmm. about, we feel like, let's for example, in this relationship, I will not survive without this person. I'm going to die without this person. And really what I look at, it's it's considered a process addiction. Mm -hmm. And so I look at it as the process of trying to make this relationship work. The process of trying to get this person to give me unconditional positive regard, to give me that thing that I didn't get in childhood. It's Mm -hmm. just this process. You're constantly in this process of trying, you're working so hard to get what you need from this person who you might not even like that much. (laughs) No shit. (laughs) (laughs) But you think you love them because, oh, this is love because you can, that's one of the things about this is that we can make someone into who we want them to be. Mm -hmm. in our minds, Mm -hmm. right? 
And then we try hard in real life to make them into that person we've made them into in our minds. Yeah. The so, potential. The Oh, potential. Yeah. So then what are your thoughts around like slaw then? Slaw. That really so, I think there are some really great slaw groups out there. I do want to say that I've I've heard really good things about the Los Angeles slaw groups. Okay, good to when, for people to hear. Yeah, and they have a lot of online meetings. So when I, eight years ago, was introduced to the fact that I was dealing with love addiction, I was referred to the one all-female group in Austin that mm. was the slaw group. And I went and, you know, I want to be full disclosure here. I was still in withdrawal. I went in, I was a little late because I couldn't find it. So I got in and I sort of hovered in the back a little bit. And for where I was at that time, it was not the right meeting for me. So because, because I was still so dysregulated and I needed something that felt more regulated. Okay. So it was really about the energy probably. Mm -hmm because there's no judgment on what anyone was talking about. Everyone goes to the meetings and they talk about what they need to talk about. So fortunately for me, I was working with a therapist who got all of this, you know, who understand and was able to talk to me directly about love addiction. I did it, like I said, one of the family of origin workshops. And so I was, I felt like I had my needs met there as far as not going back and trying another slaw meeting again. This was also before most of them were online, I think, or at least I didn't know about the online meetings at that time. Again, this was eight years ago. There are so many meetings online now. And like I said, there are some really good meetings. I'm also, one of the issues I have with slaw, some slaw meetings, is that the sex addiction and the love addiction are put I together. I agree. Because for me, the sex addiction piece didn't, that wasn't a part of my love addiction. Mine, you know, I used sex as a tool to make myself hopefully be more valuable in a relationship, but to have that put together, you know, was, it was just off-putting for me. That's why now there are love addicts anonymous meetings. Just yeah. I saw that there's a website and they have mm -hmm. like, what, like, there's like three a day or something. Are they any good? I've heard good things. I they have. Yeah. Yeah. My whole issue with it is, I mean, first of all, like AA saved my life. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't have been able to get sober, but my view on alcoholism is now so different, like through this experience of my adult child recovery. And I just think that in certain ways, it's so it can just be, I don't know if dangerous is the right word. But if that trauma, piece, it's the same thing that we're talking about of like going to therapy for like years and years, and not getting any better. I think the same exact thing could happen for somebody who's in a in a slaw meeting and they're working the step and I'm sure things will get better, but like to an extent, you're not really getting to the core wounds per se. So it's like not having that trauma piece being emphasized mm -hmm. just makes me uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, you know, that's why I've run family of origin intensives and individual intensives. And I have an online program called understanding love addiction, because to me, understanding that piece of it, understanding the trauma piece and understanding how this works and how you got here in the first place is a really, really important part of recovery. You know, that educational piece to, for me in my own recovery was crucial. Mm -hmm. I had to understand it and my brain wanted to, to know everything about how this happened, how this works, you know? And then there's also the processing piece that you would do with a therapist, right? That trauma mm -hmm. therapy and recovery and attachment focused work. When you think too about like a fourth and a fifth step and how that could actually be like super fucking re-traumatizing for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying about looking at alcohol issues differently. You know, I was talking about how my alcohol use and my love addiction were intertwined. When I started my, when I was in that therapist's office eight years ago, and I, I always would say I'm a little bit codependent and I I drink too much, you know, <laughs> uh, that's, that's what it is. And she was like, mm, that's uh, more than that. You know, this is love addiction. Yes. It's rooted in codependence, which we look at as these five core issues. And she said, I would just about bet money that once you work on this, you're not going to want to drink the way that you do now. Because mm -hmm. I looked at the alcohol use as the big shameful problem like that, because that was what was talked about most. No, no one was talking about love addiction. Mm -hmm. And so it was true. Once I started working on that, everything shifted with alcohol, everything. And then you, I was able to- Do you drink? 
I quit drinking six years ago. Okay. And the reason I quit drinking six years ago was because I'd already started my love addiction work probably two years before that. And it changed the way I drank and the way I used alcohol. But every time I would drink, it would bring up the shame of the love addiction. Mm-hmm. It was like a reminder of um, sorts. And mm-hmm. so I thought, well, I just need to remove that because I was still two years into recovery, love addiction recovery work, or a year and a half, I think at that point, that's still really early in recovery. You know, eight years now I can say, okay, that's a pretty good amount, you know, where you can really move into this place where it's like the tunnel starts to open up wider and you start to see see things that include more things to work on, which that's the gift of recovery to me, you know, is that there's always something else to work on. And then, but also, really start to experience the joy of recovery, I think. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on when Pia Melody talks about this kind of like the Prince Charming element of, you know, that we're just looking for that Prince Charming to save everything. For me, initially when I read that, I couldn't relate, but then I did realize it's like having this belief, even from a very young age that like, the only way that I'm going to be happy in life is if I'm in a committed relationship. If that doesn't happen for me, then life is a fail. And I'm curious for you, when do you think that belief for you, if you had that really started to show itself? So I was fantasizing about having a partner when I was six, seven Mm. years old. I mean, I would go to bed at night and lie in bed and have this whole movie that I would play. And it started out with Eric Estrada, he punch, you know, from Chips back in the 70s. And oh, Starsky from Starsky and Hutch back in the 70s. And I mean, there was just always someone in my fantasy. And I was fabulous. I lived in Hollywood and I had this amazing home and I would decorate the home in my head. I would and what I realized in recovery though is that it was never about the partner. The partner needed to be in there though. So I could feel that way. So Mm -hmm. I could feel fabulous and feel really important. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, I started fantasizing about that kind of relationship really early, you know? So in that is how that goes with that. This person will come along and quote unquote, save me and everything will be better. There's a rescue. That's very soothing that fantasy to a child. So that's an auto-regulation, right? If we're anxious or stressed, that kind of fantasy is a way to auto-regulate our nervous Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And so we carry that fantasy with us in our love addiction. The person, the real person comes along in our teen years or our twenties or whenever it is, we just put that fantasy right on that person. And they are supposed to make me feel the way that I've always believed I'm going to feel when that person comes along. I'm going to feel fabulous and important and valuable and I can conquer the world. And so that is that belief that is ingrained, especially in young girls. If we don't have that person, we're not as valuable. Or, you know, it was kind of like that for me in high school. I was saying that I don't know that those relationships are so much love addicted or more like the codependence, but it was like, as long as I have this person to kind of hold on to, I can do everything else. Because there's that belief I'm supposed to be with someone. I'm supposed to have a boyfriend. I'm supposed to have a partner. I'm supposed to have a committed relationship. So I would say that that started very early for me. I'm just sitting here thinking about my first relationship and how how much of a fucking doozy that was. So I met him in the seventh grade. So in the seventh grade, I became the school slut. So me and my friend gave blow, I went to a private school and we ended up giving blowjobs to two of the ninth grade boys and it, the whole fucking school knew. And I like overnight became the girl that nobody was allowed to be friends with. And so it was at that time that I met John who went to a different school, but he was in the ninth grade. And my mom said she didn't want me dating somebody that was two years older than me in high school. So I started sneaking out of the room. I started sneaking out of my house in the middle of the night to go spend time with him. And that's when I lost my virginity. That's when I started smoking pot. Eventually I got caught and, you know, security system put on the house to keep me put in and fast forward to ninth grade. We start dating again eventually tell my parents and they're okay with it. End of ninth grade, he overnight 
get his parents um, have like two people come in the middle of the night and like send him to a wilderness program. So think about that fucking trauma, like waking yeah. up in the middle of the night and he's gone. Yeah. And he was my connection to drugs and alcohol. Um, he eventually came back. And then as my alcoholism escalated, uh, it got to the point where like, he didn't want to bring me around friends anymore. And so it was like, he would hang out with me on like Sundays and maybe like one day during the week. And I would try to make new friends, but I was already such a fucking shit show at that point. And so, yeah, that's like really when the drinking alone really started to happen, like junior year, senior year, just sitting there, just drinking alone by myself mm -hmm. and fuck, like, <laughs> like just that. And then there's everything else too, right? Like with my upbringing and in and out of treatment centers and rehabs and boarding schools. But I just think about how much of a, like my drinking and drug use was, was, was purely to medicate that, that codependency, that, that love addiction, that fucking emotional flashback, you mm -hmm. know, it was yeah. so, it was way too fucking painful. Yeah. It was painful. And I think that for me, because I had long-term relationships in high mm -hmm. school, I mean, I made sure I chose people that I could, even though they were avoidant, I was, you know, really busy with that project. And so that mm -hmm. was a medicating for me. I mean, I was able to throw myself into that. And my alcohol use really, I mean, it was there, we drank, and sometimes I, you know, high school, college, but I really look at my drinking as not ramping up until I moved to New York City in my 30s. Mm -hmm. And that's when it just, just went awry. But because I was always busy with relationships, that was my medicating, you know, like I would really throw myself into that. And spending, spending was a big thing for me spending, shopping, obsessing about what I was going to wear so I could look as attractive as possible for my partner. And, you know, it was, yeah. Totally can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> so one of my big fears was from that experience and also from childhood and stuff, but that like people were going to like almost overnight decide like they didn't like me anymore. And it was almost like I, not almost like I did. It's like, we, you know, we manifest the thing that we fear the most and so I'm curious for you, how do you feel like you were like recreating and manifesting that abandonment cycle in your relationships? What did the behaviors look like? So <clears throat> there was a lot of pushing and pulling, you know, both partners, all my relationships for the most part, for the most part, not, not every single one, but a lot of them were, both of us were pushing at one time, the other person was pulling, vice versa. You know, we'd come close, we'd push apart. So you know, I used to believe that I was so available in my relationships. You know, I was so available. I was such a great girlfriend. It was them that was the issue because they were avoidant. Once I figured out about love addiction and everything, oh, they were always the problem. When I didn't know about love addiction, it was like, I am so good here and they're the jerks, right? When really I look back now and realize I actually wasn't available because as soon as they would start to move close to me, I would blow it up because I couldn't tolerate the real intimacy. You know, not that we were going to actually be having some true intimacy because there was too much pushing and pulling going on. But if they did start to move toward me and everything started to get smooth, I would blow it up somehow. And then that would cause them to pull away a little bit. And then the chase was on again. So I needed to be chasing after the person. Because if that person started moving, if that person suddenly said, hey, oh my gosh, I can't believe what a jerk I've been. Here I am. Let's do this. I would be like, ew, no, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really uncomfortable. No, so for, but I didn't know that at the time. That's what I was doing. So mm -hmm. I think it was this, and I'm not sure if this answers your question or not, but it's kind of like you think you have this perception of what you're doing and how you're at the time. But the truth was I was not available. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I would, it's almost like I'd lay down the blanket for the picnic and be like, look at all these amazing things I have to offer you. And as soon as they would come and sit down, I'd be like, oh my God, never mind," And just yank everything and run away. <laughs> so. so I think it's really important to like bring the, the ability to laugh at ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that's such an important part of like recovery is like, being able to laugh at just like the ridiculous yeah. shit that we did. So I'm curious, like what some of your like cringy, embarrassing, like stuff that, I mean, for me, like, you know, like drive-bys, calling hotels. 
I mean, everything like just <laughs> calling from different numbers, you know? So what are some things that are like super cringe that you can laugh at now? Oh gosh. Some of them are so cringy. I can't even think about them really to this day. Yeah. To this day. Yeah. I mean, there's some stuff that I guess also there are some things I can cringe and laugh about, you know, and then there are some things that I have so much compassion for myself over. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm protective of those uh -huh. because uh -huh. I was doing the best I could with what I had to work with, Absolutely. you know? So, but yeah, you were talking about, oh gosh, I mean, just, there are lots of things. I mean, just well, one thing, I, I don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about, but going back to the relationship over and over again, oh, shit. That's cringy. I mean, you know, it blows up. And the thing for me in a in the pattern, it would be like, finally, the person was doing so much, especially if you're, you know, in my really very textbook love addicted relationship that was in my 30s for four years. It was on again, off again, on again, off again. And he would consistently come back, say all the right things. And I would finally say, okay, let's try this. Within two weeks, it was back. To where it was mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then eventually I mean he would do things act out in some way and I'd say done and this pattern would start again but just thinking back on that I mean just how come on Jody I mean I consider my, I'm a pretty smart person <laughs> but that attachment stuff it, it there's nothing over. rational about mm -hmm. it it takes over and that is one of the most fucked up most painful aspects of all of it is when like you're so sane yet so insane at the same moment right yep yeah have you have you had like since I've had my podcast like I've had several exes like reach out have you since you started doing this work no none, really mm -hmm. none no I don't I don't know if they know about the podcast and I always try to be respectful which you know so because they are human beings that I really cared about one time. Well, yeah, and they were, you know, I don't hold, like, they're such an important part of my journey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I've considered, gosh, should I reach out and try to interview them? Because it would be so great to have, a, you know, an, an interview about what was going on in that moment or those mm -hmm. times. And I think that that's where I think, you know, it's, it's good to reflect on that stuff, but maybe not bring people back into right. the circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so- when you reflect upon like your healing journey, so mm -hmm. from setting foot into, her name's Laura, right? Laura, yes. that, yeah, uh -huh. that first appointment. What are some real pivotal moments in your healing journey that you can reflect upon? Like moments where you saw like, okay, like I'm getting better or I'm healing. Moments in which it was, your healing, your growth was clear to you. Yeah, I think during the first, so I- First met with Laura, the therapist who introduced me to love addiction. And then it took about two months because I was still in this cycle with someone who I had broken up with. And he was actually very honest with me that he didn't want to be in a relationship. And I just was like, I'm just going to keep trying. I was going to keep trying. And he, you know, it wasn't that he was love avoidant. He was being very honest and upfront, the most honest anyone had ever been with me, actually. And I still wasn't going to accept it. I was like, nope, I've, I've decided it's you. I'm going to wear you down until you come back to me because it's always worked before and you will change your mind. Mm -hmm. And so about two months from, you know, working with the therapist to where you finally completely cut him off. I had to go. Yeah, I did the 90 days, no contact. I communicated that boundary and it was 90 days, no contact with him and also 90 days, no dating. Do you think that it's in, if, when somebody does go no contact, what are your thoughts on whether or not to communicate that to the other person? It depends on the situation. This was a safe situation. This was a person who was, I trusted was going to hear it and respect it and not backlash or try mm -hmm. to chase after me. It's not always necessary. The way I look at it with you know, clients that I work with, it's, you know, do you feel safe communicating that? And is communicating that important to your growth? Mm. You know, it's also, it's not about the other person. It's not because a lot of times we'll think, well, I need to talk to them. And it's almost like get their permission in a way, or I need to talk to them because I need to talk to them one more time. Or, or I need to- that they're going to fight for you when you tell oh, them. There's that too. Yeah. So there's a lot that goes into looking at, you know, is communicating this boundary- yeah. The what's best, the underlying motivation of it? What's the motivation? Is this best for my growth? So it depends on the situation, but for me, it was a safe situation. It was communicating that was really helpful 
for me because I can remember that conversation so well. Yeah, I was going to say, like, do you remember what he said? Yeah. I mean, he was very understanding and respected it. My therapist, I remember her saying, he'll be, he'll try to contact you in the 90 days. And I was like, I don't think so. He's not the typical guy I've dated before. Other guys, yes, would have totally tried to crash that 90 day, no boundary, but it felt like I was going to die. I mean, starting that 90 days, no contact. It felt like, like a free fall into this really dark hole into the earth with nothing to grab onto. I was dysregulated for about six weeks. I remember marking on my calendar <laughs> every day, just so I could know I got through a day. And yeah, in six how, weeks- How were you getting through those days? Walking, going for walks. I couldn't really commit to working out because it, it was like, just go for a walk, feed myself, make sure I ate, try was going to bed at a certain time every night, but because I wasn't sleeping well, but if I could just go to bed, read, it slowly started helping my sleep. Talking about it, going to therapy was one thing, but also talking to friends who were able to hear about it because not all friends mm -mm, are going to get it, mm -hmm. but friends who I knew I could talk about it. Journaling, I will always, journaling just really has saved me so many times. And then about six weeks in of that 90 days, I remember a couple of days went by and I hadn't marked the calendar. And I was like, oh, mm. I, I'm starting to feel a little better. I'm starting to feel a lot better. And so, yeah. Oh, six that, weeks seems like such a fucking long time when you're in that shit. It, three months, 90 days seemed like, I mean, when my therapist first talked to me about the 90 days, I was like, ah, no way, that's forever. <laughs> and it's really not. I mean, that's, we talk to clients about 90 days because if we said a year, they would never come back. They'd be like, you're crazy. I'm never coming back. I never want to work with this therapist again. But three months, the 90 days is enough. It's like, okay, I, you can start getting a little more of a bite-sized piece, right? But it's also enough time for you to feel more regulated, dig into some work. And then I've had clients who will say, I'm going to continue on. It's not just 90 days. They'll go on six months and then they'll go on a year. Mm -hmm. And so it it's, depends on the case, but that 90 days is really just a starting point. Mm -hmm. And so after those 90 days, like wh what transpired? I learned something. I did start dating someone and. After how long? So here's the thing that happened with my 90 days is that my therapist believed 90 days, no contact from the person, your qualifier. So now that I'm talking about it, I'm remembering about two months into that 90 days, I started dating someone else. How'd you meet them? Through another person, a friend. We were not a match, <laughs> but I realized it really quickly. Mm. And I saw the patterns so much more easily and more quickly than I would have in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I ended it. And so I look back on that and think, that's why when I talk to clients, I talk to them about 90 days, no contact, no dating, because- you can start another addicted relationship pretty easily. And after that, I didn't date anybody else. So that was what was interesting. And I do remember talking to my therapist about starting to date this guy. And she said, huh, okay. We didn't really go into it. And it's kind of like, I'm just not putting this all together right now, but it was about two months in and I was still doing my work. And, you know, the rule was no contact with this other person. So yeah, I'm, I'm actually just putting that together right now. And I could be remembering wrong. Maybe it was more like at right at the 90 days, but I remember we didn't really dig into it in therapy, but I also, it, it ended pretty quickly. Like I saw the pattern, not so much my pattern. I wasn't ramping up. There wasn't any putting him on a pedestal or anything like that. And maybe that's why it ended so quickly is because I was like, I'm bored with this. This isn't, we also just weren't a match. So I was seeing reality really quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of processing this as I'm talking to you. I think that was right at the 90 days actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this, it's really interesting how I was able to see that, like, this is, we're not a match. I could just see the reality of the situation and it didn't last long. It was a few weeks probably. And so after those 90 days, do you feel like that's when you were really able to start digging into some of the deeper stuff? Yeah. I think that digging into the deeper stuff has been an ongoing yeah, <laughs> over the last obviously, eight years. but I mean, yeah. yeah, you're it's there are these constant aha moments, 
you know, where you're putting things together. I, I think also a few years ago, I started working with Kelly McDaniel when she was beginning her, um, the mother hunger work with a select few therapists to train us on her model and how to work with clients. And that's also when a whole other piece of this opened up too. So I think that that was another big part part of, yeah, you know, it's all puzzle pieces is what I call them. There's all these puzzle pieces and the puzzle is never finished. Really? Mm-hmm. I think that we think of, oh, recover, I'm going to recover. And so I'm going to be all done when really you're constantly working on this puzzle. As you go forward and you keep working, you start to see the image a lot more clearly, right? But there's always another piece out there. And that's what's, I think the beauty of recovery is that there's always, instead of saying, oh my gosh, there's more to do. (laughs) It's like, look at that. There's, There's more to do. The piece that I realize is like, a lot of the healing that I've done has been very conscious, you know, and that like, there hasn't been enough somatic work and there hasn't been enough like inner child work. And I realized that those are probably like the two most important aspects of a lot of this healing. So I'm curious mm-hmm. for you, like what in particular EMDR, inner child work, parts work, whatever, what do you feel like has really had a huge impact on, on your own personal recovery? Yeah, I would say if you look at Pia's work and we're looking with different ego states, which can include that wounded child part, which is the very young part, and then the inner adapted wounded child. Mm-hmm. Working with and acknowledging those parts has been huge for me. EMDR was always really helpful. I, as a therapist, am trained in attachment-focused EMDR. So it's where we look at, you know, as therapists, we do the basic training, which is the basic EMDR training, and then you can do different. I didn't um, know there was that. That's great to yeah, know. Attachment-focused okay. EMDR. That's Laurel Parnell's work. Okay. And she is amazing. And one of the things she's, I didn't know this, but she'll say, you know, that EMDR was really developed for PTSD. Yeah. So we're talking single event traumas, yeah, big T trauma, right. And not so much complex trauma. And so attachment yeah. focused really looks at the complex trauma and it's amazing working with clients with attachment focused EMDR has been really amazing. It's so, really interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Her, yeah. Attachment focused EMDR and then self-compassion, you know, which is something that is challenging, you know, but it's really to be able to remind myself you know, those things happened. I did those things, own the reality. Um, and I don't have to live in shame <laughs> for the rest of my life because of the things that I did because they don't define me. And I was really just trying to survive. And the story in my head was that I had to do all those things in order to try to survive. I, you know, that I I didn't realize um, the pattern I was in, in the relationships. And I didn't realize the value that I had. I didn't know my value back then. So when we don't know our value, it's really hard to operate in integrity. Yeah. No kidding. For me, it was like on a conscious level, like I thought I had high self-esteem, but my actions clearly showed otherwise. Right. And that was the part that was really fucking confusing for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think that that's also, you know, we talk about self-esteem with Pia's work, we look at it as a, a verb. So it's our ability to self-esteem versus mm-hmm. something that we have. Mm-hmm. And I love because that. I think, yeah, because it's it's not about, you know, can I esteem appropriately? Am I esteeming appropriately right now? Versus I have, because we can look at it like, oh, they have self-esteem. I'll never have that, you know, or I have low self-esteem. I'm just going to have this. It's going to be like this the rest of my life instead of, oh, I can actually control the way that I, you know, self-esteem is a verb. So as we talked about earlier, just how few therapists are aware of this shit. Mm -hmm. And it just seems so hard for people to find somebody who's like quality. Yeah. From what I've heard is like, it's not necessarily the modality that's the most important aspect, but more so like being feeling really seen, heard and understood by the therapist. Just curious, what are your suggestions to people? Like how does one suss out if this person's going to be a good fit or not as it relates to dealing with these issues? Are there good questions to ask? Like I also think it's really important, like what you said about your therapist, about them opening up. I understand that there are some boundaries, but I really do think that for this work, for these issues, the the therapist, like, I don't really see how it can be effective 
unless they're willing to share some about their own journey, you know? Yeah, it is hard. It's appropriate self-disclosure can be really helpful. And that's a fine line for therapists to walk. You know, for me, I have the podcast and blogging, being on Instagram, people know my story. Yeah. So in session, I don't have to share too much because yeah. people already know that I, my history and that I get it. As far as finding a new therapist, what I recommend is, you know, you okay, one step is if you contact the Meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona, you can call the intake line and say, I live in and tell them your state. I'm looking for a Meadows trained therapist in my area. And they, at least in the past, will provide names of therapists who have trained. Okay. Yeah. Now, the thing is, this does not mean that they are actively using PIA's model. This doesn't mean that they fully comprehend mm -hmm. it, right? But it's a starting place. And so you can always reach out to these therapists. And then from there, ask these therapists, do you use Pia's model? Do you understand and work with love addiction? But the most important, I think, question for anybody, even if it's not a Meadows trained therapist, even if you get on psychology today and find a therapist who's a trauma therapist, just say, look, I believe I'm dealing with love addiction. Do you understand the concept of love addiction? They may say no. Or they um, might say yes and not. <laughs> and, and they might say yes and not, right. But a, a question to ask first is, are you able to support me you know, in my love addiction recovery, are you comfortable doing that? Mm. Because that's a step one, because some therapists, some therapists don't understand it enough to be comfortable really supporting. And that's a, it's a yes or no question. And the therapist can say, I'm really not, I can help you find someone or here's a good resource. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you might go in for a few sessions and work with someone and realize, I don't know, this may not be a fit and it's okay. It's okay to say, I've decided, I don't think we're a good fit. I don't think we talk about that enough, that it's okay to say, I'm not sure about us being a fit. I'm not feeling uh, like this is going to work. Mm -hmm. And then that's a conversation you get to have with that person, mm -hmm. right? And opens up um, just another conversation where you can get more information. But I think that it, it is challenging to find someone. It is, yes, it's challenging to find someone who fully understands love addiction but there are good attachment-focused therapists out there, good trauma therapists who work with developmental trauma. And so even if they're not familiar with PMLD's work or love addiction, they could be someone who can help with uh, the trauma work. When you're working with some, I mean, God, I, the people that are reaching out to you, like I obviously they already have, I would say, probably a good bit of knowledge of like what the deal is if they've found you and are familiar with you. But have there been, are there ever deal breakers with you with working with with clients? Like, would there ever be a situation where like you know be like, I don't think you're ready for this work, or like if someone's in a, not in a place of willingness yet, or what are your thoughts there? So, I wouldn't say deal breakers. Um, mm my job as a therapist is to meet the client where they where are. So, yeah. right. So if they come in and they're like, you know, I've been in this relationship, we've broken up, they're in withdrawal, let's say, and then they get back together with the person. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is what Pia will say is that unless someone's in withdrawal, it's really hard to make any changes. You're going to stay in that cycle. And so I work with them while they're in that cycle, you know, and I'm there mm -hmm. for them. And I, again, we're building that secure base so that they know they can come in and talk about this. And I'm not going to shame them for, you know, trying yeah, to process that's the their... most important part. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I wouldn't say deal breakers. I think that, and there have been times when someone's come in and we've talked about this, you know, the love addiction cycle and the reality of what's going on. And I've had a couple of people not come back because, you know, they weren't quite ready exactly. to work on it. And then, and then they come back later. They'll come exactly. back a year later and say, Hey, can I come back? <laughs> you know, so, yeah, yeah, you're not gonna, there's really what a person's done, the person's done, and there's not really much somebody can do until they're at that point. Right. So what are you jazzed about? What are you working on? How could people work with you? What do you want to promote? Well, there's the oh, podcast, right? Yeah. Under Yeah, it's uh, Journals of a Love Addict. And then I have an online program called Understanding Love Addiction, which is an online uh, coaching program that breaks down. Um, is basically that self-paced? It's self-paced and you, I work with the people as well. So there's a combination. And it also is the way that people can be a part of my online community. 
So by being in the program, they get to also be part of my online community. And I'm very slowly working on a book. There's some other little creative things that I'm doing. And so, yeah. It's amazing. Well, what you're doing is so fucking important. That's my last question is, are you able to soak that in? Like how, how much you're helping other people and how does that feel? Cause you've saved tons of lives. Gosh, that makes me want to cry. That's so, I don't, I've never really looked at it like that. Um, I'm sure you get tons of messages. Like you're, you're asking a question actually though, that I was thinking about just the other day, because I just in a short period of time, I got several messages and I thought, Oh yes, this is why I do this, (laughs) you know, because you can start to look at it as, you know, putting the podcast out, the production of it, the, the work of it or something like that. And the whole reason I started the podcast was because, like I said, when I was dealing with love addiction, no one was talking about this. I remember literally being on the floor in agony and just wishing someone could understand, you know, because nobody seemed to understand. So that's why I started the podcast. And to keep that in mind, you know, that that is why I do that. And then I've also heard from several people recently who went back to grad school, who left their career that they were not happy in and went back to graduate school and have sent me thank yous for, because I talk about my journey, but I went back to school when I was 40, you know, 15 years ago. And it just, you think that you think you can't do it and then you do it and then everything starts to open up, you know? So there's that part too, that not only talking to people about love addiction and helping people get into recovery and not feel so alone, but then, you know, hearing from people who have gone back to school to be a therapist too. And that was my journey too, is I was a CPA and part of hitting my bottom was the realization too, of how much I was selling myself short in life, like Mm -hmm. from a career perspective. And then like really setting out on this path of like, why was I put here? You know? Yes. And it's so clear to me in my journey. And I think for you too, it's like, this is every single thing that happened to you. Like you were selected to do this work. Like that's my belief. Like you came into this life meant to be a voice for this Mm -hmm. cause and to do this work. And so I just think sometimes when you think about it and you get the messages and it's really hard to like be in that place. But when you really look at the, the bigger picture of it all, it's like so much bigger than you and I, Mm -hmm. you know, and it really is just, I don't know. It's just, I, I need to soak it in more and I hope that you can soak it in more too, because like I said, you are, you are saving so many fucking lives And I think it is important that you, I don't know. I really hope that you can feel that because it's so true. Thank you. You're right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. I can't wait for people to hear this and I will include all your shit in the show notes. And I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. That was great. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.